scripture reading today is from Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Amen. Welcome this fall to something, as you can see, called The Journey, and I'm really excited about it. Over the next eight weeks or so, we're going to be moving through the book of Hebrews. We'll be meeting together frequently, I think almost every week, in our community groups to give those of you in a community group an opportunity to go a little deeper in your relationships. If you're new here, it gives you some more frequent on-ramps. Also, we'll be trying to go deeper together as a faith community uh, tomorrow, starting tomorrow, on the app. And the app alone, you may have heard about that that app we just launched here at Mosaic, we'll be offering daily devotionals moving through the book of Hebrews, so Monday through Friday for eight weeks, written by members of Mosaic, sort of across the board, all stripes. Uh, Those will be available for you on your app. We'll be doing a few community group lunches along the way. I think our first one is next week after the third service, yeah. And then we'll conclude the whole thing with our fall fest, not the fall fast. That was this past week. There's a a time for fasting and there's a time for feasting. How many, you know, there's a time for feasting, yeah. So that's sort of what that's aimed at. Uh, We've done it in various times in many ways. Thank you, Galen. It gets the Bible humor there. Sorry. Let's go on now. Scripture reading. All right. Uh, but we're doing it in a whole new way this year. The point is, uh, it's going to be great, and we're excited to have you, I hope, along for the journey with us. Here we go. So why this name, right? And why this book? Of the Bible. Well, the book of Hebrews, you may know, was written to a group of Christians in the first century who were really under attack for their faith. They had come out by and large of the Jewish community that was now mocking them, persecuting them for their faiths in Jesus. They were also being systematically uh, killed. Their property had begun to be legally confiscated by the Roman Empire. And when you put those two groups together, these Christians were at a point of almost giving up. They were looking 
looking out at the culture. They were afraid of what they were seeing. They were being discouraged by their circumstances. And they were, again, on the verge of quitting, on the verge of giving up their faith in Jesus altogether. What did they need? What could help them? Well, as we're going to see, the author of the book of Hebrews, whose name we don't actually know, the author of the book of Hebrews gives them the same thing we need to see as we face every trial, every moment, every up and down of life. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that every moment we need Jesus. <laughs> That's the answer the book gives us. Uh, what we needed in various times in many ways is to see some part of Jesus, some aspect of who he is, some aspect of his nature or character or heart for us. And so that's my goal today is to convince you that you not only need, but that you should want Jesus as the final word for your life. That's what the writer of Hebrews is giving these first century Christians that in their moment of discouragement, he's saying you need to see Jesus as the final word for your life today. So he's the final word for us, as I hope we'll see in four ways today. He's the final word for our head, for our heart, for our hands, and for history. Here we go. Number one, he's a final word for our head. If you've ever seen the movie, the Stepford Wives. Yeah, Stepford Wives. There's Nicole Kidman and all her airbrushed glory. But uh, if you've ever seen the movie, there was like this, uh, I think, 1970s version. It was sort of creepy. And then a, a more modern remake that was sort of more comedy oriented a few years ago. But both of them, it's the same basic plot, which is what? There's a group of men, actually husbands, in Stepford, Connecticut, who think their lives would be so much better. If their wives would just do whatever the husbands want them to do. The wives would quit nagging them and bugging them. If they would just cook and clean like they wanted to. Uh, the, the husbands thought our lives would go so much better. And so they conspire to turn their wives into robots. Yeah, that's the plot of the movie. Now, why would this sound appealing to anyone? Don't laugh. Well, it's because if you've, you know this, if you've ever been in a relationship relationships are just hard work much harder work than we sometimes we would ever want to put into that relationship and my wife Carrie found this out really clearly about a month if not before but at least a month into our marriage uh, we got married and soon after that her cousin sent us a package in the mail one day and I got that package, and I, I had known it was, it was coming. It was supposed to be full of mementos and keepsakes from our wedding. And so I opened up the box, and I saw these pictures, photographs, that her, uh, her cousin had sent us. And so I got the photographs. And, uh, but what I didn't know was that the box, the package, actually had something else in there. Little did I know that in that same box, her cousin, after the wedding, had put something in there. She had gone back and painstakingly off the ground had gathered up the rose petals that lined the walkway to the altar underneath the palm tree where we said I do in Southern California. And her cousin had taken those rose petals and had freeze-dried them to allow us to keep them forever. Except we didn't. Because I took them and threw them unintentionally in the dumpster behind our first apartment complex. And if you were here, you'd hear my wife. I mean, she still hadn't forgiven me for that one, I think. She's like, why didn't you just look in the box? 
Now, again, why are relationships so hard? Well, it's like in that context, that story. It's because the other person just makes some choices sometimes. The other person has a will. The other person has a voice, but if you move to silence that person's voice or will now, that person ceases to be a person all together, don't they? They do. Why? Because at that point, just like in Step for Connecticut, the other person isn't a person at all. And what the incredible words of Hebrews 1 show us today is that God has a will. He's personal. He wants to have, this is saying, a personal relationship, yes, even with you today. This is saying God has a will. God has a voice. God sounds like something. What does God sound like? This is saying he sounds, he looks just like Jesus. Look at verse 2. It says that in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Pause for a moment. What are the last days? People get confused, hung up by this. The last days, that phrase is just a technical term in the Bible that refers to all the time between the coming of Jesus and the end of time itself. Between the coming of Jesus, the end of time itself, we today, we're living in, biblically speaking, the last days because we live in the period between the coming of Jesus and the end of time. And this is saying that for all time, once and for all, God's final word for all the days to come until the end of time, his final word is Jesus why is this like that? Look at this. It says, well, because in the last, in, the, in, in various times, in many ways in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. Now, the word here where it says various ways is a word I love. It's the Greek word polytropos. It means many pieces, many portions. This is saying that in the past, God gave us like a piece of himself. He, he spoke and gave us a piece through like Moses. Then he spoke and he gave us a peace through David. He spoke and he gave us a peace through Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets. But now this is saying, in these last days, the full last puzzle piece has come into place. And the picture has revealed itself to be Jesus all along. We get now the full picture, the full scope of who God is. And from now until the end of time, God's final word to humanity looks like, is Jesus Christ. Now, let's just recognize for a moment, that's kind of like a hard word to hear sometimes, isn't it? That's a hard word for our heads in our modern culture. Why is that? Well, you know, it's because today we like everything, oh, individualized to the max. We like our spirituality like we like our coffee, made to order right? We like it. Like we like our coffee made to order. We live in a Stepford wives culture where we expect everything to be tailored around us. And when it's not that way, we don't just resist it, do we? Oh, we challenge it. We challenge it. And uh, I love this because I couldn't get enough of the movie. Apparently I went back and looked at the teaser trailer uh, for the movie and I love it. It actually is brilliant. And the, the, the voice on the trailer comes on and it opens up with this like 1950s big band music. And it's got this gleaming shots of, you know, polished shoes and perfume bottles and, you know, fancy phones and polished cars coming out of garages. And then the announcer's voice comes on and he says this, he says, this is your life. 
Everything you own is beautiful, perfectly constructed, ideally manufactured. Everything you possess feels, thinks, and responds just the way you want it, as if it were made just for you. Don't you deserve the ultimate in perfection? And I love that because it's not just pushing on our culture, it's actually taking that thought to its logical conclusion that if everything is supposed to be about us, then in the end, all our relationships should just be what we want them to be to, including our spirituality. But what Hebrews 1 is saying flies right in the face of all that, doesn't it? Flies right in the face about what we think today. We think that if there is a God, he ought to look like, he ought to think, he ought to talk like, just like I want. And if he contradicts me in any meaningful way, like those husbands did with their wives. Pause. Selah. Like those husbands did with their wives. We're going to move to get rid of him. Now, let me ask you, Christian people here today, where has your God ever contradicted you? Hmm? Did you know that to be in a relationship with God in the Bible means he contradicts you? If you, matter of fact, if you don't want to be contradicted, don't get into the relationship with this God. Look at Abraham. Abraham, leave your country, leave your family, go there. Where God? I don't know. I'm going to tell you later. I'm going to show Job how much he must suffer, and Paul, for my name. Moses, go confront Pharaoh. I don't want to. Do it anyway. Jesus, son, go to the cross. If you're willing, Lord, I'm not. (laughs) To be in a relationship with a real God means he contradicts you. Where has your God ever told you, no, you can't have that? Where's your God ever told you you can't go there, can't buy that, can't look at that? Or by contrast, where has he told you you must go there? You must give that. You must say that. Where's your God ever contradicted any economic choice you've ever made? How you express your sexuality, where you live, your views on race. Where has he ever contradicted you? Listen. If you're in a real relationship, because you say, man, that's really hard here. Yeah, but if you're in a real relationship, you know how often you get contradicted? I don't know, like every day. Why? Because it's a relationship. (laughs) How a relationship works. And if your God can't contradict you, if this God can't give you a final word for your life, guess who's God of your life? Oh, you are. Now, guess what you lose? Two things immediately. First of all, you lose his unlimited power in your life because he's the one that says, who made the whole universe? I think I'd like to have that person on my side. But secondly, even more tragically, you'll lose this. Number two, a final word for your heart. Let me show you what I mean. Fascinating that in that movie, there's this big scene at the end, Nicole Kidman's being led away, or so we think, to be turned into a robot against her will, all these men sentencing her, you know. And she leans back over her shoulder, and she asks them this question, the right question. She asks them this. She says, but if your wife is a robot, when she tells you she loves you, does she really mean it? That's a great question. If your wife's a robot, when she tells you she loves you, does she really mean it? Let me ask you, 
If God's word to you is just whatever you want to hear, if he's just a robot, right? You've made it all up. Then when you go to his word for love and affirmation, is it really real? The answer is no, it's not. It can't be because you've made him up from the beginning. He's just a projection of you, but only see, only receiving Jesus as a final word for your head now, now, now validates what he says and gives you a final word for your heart. He's Savior and Lord. You say, how do you see that? Look at this verse right here. It says this, after he had provided, what's the word? Purification for sins. Listen, this is telling you the inconvenient truth about you and all humankind, which is that you and I, we were so wicked and broken, Jesus had to come. He had to come. We couldn't save ourselves. Oh, but this is saying, God loved us so much. He was willing to do whatever it took to get us back. And you see this here to this word, purification. Purification. Because as much as this word is, yes, a reference to Jewish ceremonial laws and all their sacrifices, this is just showing us a picture of what every human heart tries to do. Every human heart tries in its own way to be purified, to be clean. The Jews took these animals and they brought them before the fire and they put them in to be purified, to feel clean, to feel approved. And the Bible is saying in the same way, every culture does this just in a different way. A man by the name of Ernest Becker was a psychologist, not a Christian, and he wrote a fascinating book. He won a Pulitzer Prize for it, called The Denial of Death. And he began to look it out at our culture and began to notice the erosion of God in our culture. And he says, above all else in American culture, if we move God out, he said, look what's happened. He says, we have substituted now sex and romance for God. And by the way, you can see this, right? I mean, whenever you see a commercial, you're like, that's for shampoo. Why do I need sex to sell me toothpaste? I'm going to buy it anyway, right? Hopefully. I need a, what does sex have to do with my car, right? Buying a car. What does it have to do with that new, you know, come on, every new, you know, starlet pop singer now has moved their way across. And their sex has got to sell their songs too. Why is it? Ernest Becker would say is because we're trying to fill God in our culture. Look at this. He said, when God is absent, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. In one word, that love object becomes God. After all, what is it we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? He says, we want, look at this word, redemption, nothing less. He's saying we look to the love partner as the one who redeem us, provide purification for our hearts, to being the sacrificial lamb, so to speak. We send into the raging fire of our insecurity to make us feel better about who we are. Oh, but Jesus is telling you today, he has a final word for your heart, a final word of love and affirmation for you. Look, this is saying, at the lengths to which he was willing to go, even into the fire for you. He became human, 
came into a body with blood and with bones and was betrayed and his body was broken and he went to the cross and he went into the tomb. Oh, but he was raised to life, resurrected, came back from the dead to prove to you once and for all that God will accept, yes, even someone like you today. When your heart asks, am I loved? Am I approved? Am I loved beyond my performance or my appearance or what other people say about me? The final word Jesus wants to give you is yes. Yes, once and for all, he has spoken by his son. You are loved and cherished, period, end of story. The final word your heart needs is this today. And I pray you get this. And listen, the apostle Paul prayed that you would get this when he wrote his magnum opus to the church, the book of Ephesians chapter three. He looked out of that church. He said, what do they need above all? Chapter three, he tells them, he said, I pray that you, being rooted and established in what? Love. May have power together with all the saints, God's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that goes beyond your brain, it surpasses knowledge that you be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What's Paul praying? He's praying you to have a final word for your heart today. A final word for your heart, that your heart would know that you're loved, that you don't have to, you don't have to give your body away. Someone needs to hear this, your body away to that man to know your love. You don't have to give the best of you away to that career. You leave your wife and children hanging, spouse hanging. You don't have to do that. You don't have to go into the fire. There's someone who went into the fire for you, see. Your heart can know no matter what happens, no matter if your spouse doesn't love you like they're supposed to, no matter if you never get married, if you, even if you want to, no matter if your kids go off the rails one day, you can know you're cherished and loved through the one who made the universe. Jesus is the final word for our hearts today. The final word for your heart. And therefore, when he tells you he loves you, you can know. You can take it to the bank, unlike when those Stepford wives said something. Unlike a robot, when he says it, he means it. Because he's real. When you receive him as a final word for your head, you get a final word for your heart. Receive him as Lord. You receive him as Savior. Get him as Savior. Now, now, now. Let's put these two things together. Head and heart. Once we get these, how should it make us live? What should we look like if we really do get this? If we really get a final word for our head and our heart? Number three, this is showing us now we can have a way to live. A final word for our hands. Here we go. I love this part. Uh, you may notice in the chapter, the rest of it is sort of talking about why Jesus is greater than the angels. This is because Jewish tradition held that it was angels who sort of existed like the quarterback. They took the Ten Commandments from God and handed them to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is greater even than those angels. Yeah, they got near to God. They touched the law. But Jesus is greater even than them. And of course, the right question now to ask is, well, Why? Why is he so much greater than the angels? Okay, what you're about to see is what the writer of Hebrews gives as the exact justification for the forever greatness of Jesus Christ. Let's look. 
It says, he pulls from Psalm 45. He says, but about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. What made Jesus so great? All right. This is saying what made him so great is at the bottom of who he was, at the bottom of his character and ministry, was the fact that he was able to hold two things together in tension that no one else ever could, and apart from his power, no one else ever can. This is saying he was able to hold these two things together. He, this is saying, he loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. He did these two things. You say, well, what's so hard about that? Oh, you know. Just look at churches across the nation. Look at the church across the world. For example, conservative churches, by and large, tend to be able to do the former. They love righteousness. They preach righteousness. This word here in the Greek is the word diakosune. It's the word that means an individual standing before God. When one sinner repents, when they come to God, when they ask forgiveness for their sins, God approves them. He makes them righteous. He gives them diakosune before God. And if you're from a church background that preaches that, you think, yeah, that sounds about right. And therefore, these church backgrounds, conservative church backgrounds, primarily see sin as an individual thing existing only in the human heart. And see, the church's responsibility is to emphasize an individual's personal responsibility before God. And again, if you're nodding your head, you're thinking that's what church ought to be about. It shows the kind of background you're from. And let me tell you, church is not less than that. We must be about that. Jesus loved righteousness, but, but, but. On the other hand, this is saying he at the same time hates, hated, wickedness. Oh, which is this word wickedness is the word frequently used in the Old Testament as the opposite of justice. In other words, there was justice and something on the other hand so wrong, so bad, so dark, so backbreaking. It wasn't just unjust. It was wicked. Wickedness, the word rasha, rasha. And of course, if you're from a more liberal church background, more minority church background, you think, yeah, pretty much that's what church ought to be about. Proclaiming, preaching to and against systemic social structures where sin is evident, where it's sin breaks the back of people across the board. And churches like that, yeah, they've understood that sin's primarily corporate in nature. That the role of the church is to preach against, condemn, unjust social structures in the public square. And of course, you see Jesus doing this. He preaches against the Romans, against the Pharisees, whose structures were breaking the back of God's people. But listen, this is showing us that sin isn't one or the other. It's both, it's both personal and it's corporate. And to fail to understand that now is to fail to have the power to be able to change the world in the way that God intends. I mean, look at, for example object lesson here. Look at the minor prophets, right? Minor prophets, all those people you never read. Hosea, right? Joel, Amos, Obadiah, even. What do they preach against primarily? What? Injustice. But what do they show us was always, always at the bottom of injustice. It was idolatry. 
idolatry. Wherever you had idolatry down low, you had injustice up high in culture. And whenever injustice up high in culture existed, you could trace it all the way down to idolatry in the human heart. And Jesus, this is saying, wants to bring his scepter, his touch to both in our world. He loved righteousness. He hated wickedness. He's saying, I love it when one sinner, yes, you, repents and comes and stands in right standing before me. Oh, but he's saying, I hate it when peoples and cultures make laws, create systems that abuse people made in the image of God. One of my uh, seminary professors, uh, he was a missionary for many years in Tanzania, East Africa. And he and his wife moved there to minister in a small Muslim village. And while they were there doing their ministry, living life, they decided to start a family. But they found that they were infertile. They couldn't have biological children of their own. So they started the adoption process there, Tanzania. And as they started, do you know what they were told by the adoption agencies there? They were told, if you want a child that looks like you, fair skin, it's going to take you three to five years to get that child. It's long you have to wait. They said, well, fine. What about anybody else? You know, what if we don't necessarily want that kind of a person or background? They said, all right, if you want a mixed race child, it'll take you about a year. They said, well, what about a black girl? They said, oh, about six months. They said, what if we wanted a black boy? They said, oh, you can have one instantly. They said, well, of course, we'll take whatever you can give us right now. What were they facing? What were they hearing? Oh, that's Russia. That's wickedness. That's a, that's a system. That's a people. That's somehow a culture, a, a thing, an influence that's conspired together, both individual and corporate, to break down the Imago day in people's lives. What can fix that? What can change that? Oh, understanding that sin is not just individual or corporate, but both. It's calling individual sinners to repent of the ways. They've broken people down, and it's to condemn wickedness wherever it comes, wherever one skin color is elevated, prioritized against another, whether it looks like that, some kind of crazy adoption rules, whether it looks like white supremacy, neo-Nazism, apartheid, wherever it comes, wherever it rears its head, our role, Jesus is saying, is to hate wickedness, not just to do one or the other, and therefore, if we'll see this, if we'll do this, if we'll move out into culture with one handful of righteousness, loving righteousness, one handful of hating wickedness. Oh, do you know what this will do? This is saying when Jesus did this, this is what made him so great. This is saying because he did this, God therefore anointed him. He raised him up. Why? Because no one else can do this. And apart from his power, no one else can. He anointed him. This is the symbol for God's exaltation, his honor, his approval. God raised him up above his companions and showed him to the world. And if we'll move out in our city, our culture doing this, guess what God might do for us, might do for us. This is showing us how we minister with our hands, not one or the other, but both. Jesus says, yes, I've come to save sinners and I've come with good news for the poor. Christocentric ministry isn't one or the other. It's doing both. Churches, culture tries to pull us apart. We must keep these together forever. Jesus, therefore, is a final word for our head for our heart, and for our hands. But as if that weren't just good enough, let me show you one more thing here that we get with Jesus as our final word, almost beyond our imagination. Number four, this is saying, Jesus becomes the final word 
for history itself. Look at what the writer here says about the end of days. This is the future he's talking about. He says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You'll roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They'll be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. This is saying no matter what happens in human history, no matter how worn out, broke down, beaten up the world seems, at the end of time, this is saying that Jesus will, this is the word, transform it all. He'll change it all because of who he is and what he has done. If you've ever seen or read uh, the climactic scene uh, of the book and movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this great scene in there where, of course, the Christ figure, Aslan the Great Lion, is bound and tied and he's put onto a stone table to be put to death. And he's there because one of the other characters in the story, a young man by the name of Edmund, had come into Narnia, betrayed his siblings, betrayed Narnia, betrayed Aslan, and sold himself to the White Witch. And therefore, the White Witch now, because of the deep magic, the spiritual laws of Narnia, because of the deep magic, she had a claim on his life and could legally put that traitor to death. But then Aslan stepped up and said, I will go in his place. And of course, the White Witch is extremely pleased. She thinks she's going to be able to put to death, finally, her arch enemy. And so Aslan was bound, tied, put on the stone table, was put to death, And Narnia mourned. Oh, but unknown to the white witch. There wasn't just deep magic. There was a deeper magic in Narnia, which said that if a willing victim who had committed no treachery was put to death in the place of the guilty, then the stone table would crack. Death itself would begin to work backwards, which is exactly what happened. The deeper magic, a power greater than the power of treachery and faithlessness and sin and death began working once the willing and innocent victim, Aslan, once he was put to death, it began working. Death began working backward. Aslan was brought back to life. He was given an indestructible form and he began to move to reclaim and change the whole world. And this is exactly what Hebrews 1 is saying. Is happening now. It's saying because there is a deeper magic working in the world now. Your heart can have hope. And it's happening because of who Jesus is and what he has done. He was the willing victim who went in the place of us traitors. But the incredible thing this is showing us is he didn't just die for people, although he did. This is saying he died to reclaim the whole universe, the whole world. And this is saying that no matter what the world looks like, no matter what we experience today, though it looks like earthquakes get the final word, though it looks like hurricanes or dictators with fingers on the end of nuclear bombs might get the last word. This is saying they won't get the last word. This is saying Jesus gets the final word. Why? Because he is the final word. Your heart can have hope. He, he, he. He is the final word for history. There's a deeper, stronger magic at work in the world right now to turn back the clock and make it the way it should have been all along. And if you know Jesus has the last word in history, how much more 
Does he have the last word in your history today? This week I actually knew when I was going to preach this. I had this in the back of my mind. I was on the phone with a friend of mine who called me and sort of a mentor of mine. I've known him for 20 plus years. He lives across the country and uh, he told me something tragic. He said that his wife of 43 and a half years was leaving him. He said she didn't want anything to do with him anymore, didn't want anything to do with their children anymore. She began to drink heavily and made multiple attempts on her own life. And in a moment of vulnerability, she had confessed that because she'd been abandoned by her father as a child, she didn't really know if she was loved or could be loved or could give love. See, she didn't have a final word for her heart, right? But then my friend, in the middle of his grief, he began to to preach to me. He says, I'm not going to be bitter because my kids are watching. He says, I want my testimony to be true and I want to finish well. He said, because I know. He starts quoting Bible verses to me, Ephesians 2.10. God has made me to be his workmanship. And he starts getting fired up on the phone. God's made me to be his work of art. He's got a plan for me. He is not surprised by this. He's seen the end from the beginning. And he says, yeah, I've been faithful to my wife for 43 and a half years. I've never kissed another woman. He said, I don't even know if my lips will work on anybody else anymore. But he said, I know God's holding my life. He's got a plan for me no matter what. Oh, church, what did he have? He had Jesus as the final word in history. Therefore, the final word for his history And on his unexpected journey and adventure at age 65, he found the strength he needed to make it. This is saying we can have the same today.